In Mark 7:24, the Bible says, And from thence he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon, and entered into a house, and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. For a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. Isn't that the truth? Eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, For this saying, Go thy way, the devil is gone out of thy daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out, and her daughter laid upon the bed. Again, Mark is teaching us who Jesus is by demonstrating to us what Jesus did. Yes. And Jesus loved. He still loves. Amen. He loved. Amen. Jesus healed. Jesus forgave. Mm -hmm. Jesus redeemed. Jesus dined with sinners and publicans. He was willing to reach into the lives of people that nobody else would have anything to do with. Yep, that's right. Jesus was confronted with a woman that was taken in the very act of adultery. She was set up, by the way. And when he addressed her situation, his first thing was to tell those who wanted to judge her, let, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Mm -hmm. And of course, if the one with sin cast the stone, he was condemning himself because he deserved the stone too, you see. And that's what they all realized. And Jesus said, woman, where are your accusers? Does any man condemn you? She says, none. He says, neither do I condemn you. But go and sin no more. Mm -hmm. He called her to repentance. Yes. But he was merciful to her. Jesus was merciful. Jesus sympathized. We see in John eleven thirty five, 35, he was sympathetic to the cause of those who were mourning the loss of their friend Lazarus. He wept. He wept because he was moved with compassion, but also because he was frustrated because they couldn't grasp the concept of the resurrection and the eternal life that he offered. The Bible says that when he saw the multitudes scattered as sheep without a shepherd, he had compassion on them. He was compassionate. And so that's who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. Love, healing, forgiveness, redemption. When you go to Jesus, he's like the father greeting the prodigal son. When the prodigal son came to the father and said, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me one of your hired servants. I just need to get off the streets. His dad didn't say, told you, boy, that you were going to mess it all up. Now, you've done dishonored the family. You know what all kind of sacrifices I'm going to have to make to clean up your He didn't do any of that. What did the father do in the prodigal son story? Welcomed him home, killed the fatted calf. They had a feast. My son was lost, but now he's home again. He's lost, but now he's found. He was dead. Now he's alive. That's Jesus. And the focus of today's passage is how Jesus, with all of those attributes, interacted with a Syrophoenician woman who wanted her daughter delivered of a demon. In other words, the devil cast out of her daughter. Now, the Bible tells us a couple of things about this woman. First of all, she's a Greek, and she's a Syrophoenician by nation. 
That's two different descriptors. Yeah. All right? Her nationality is Syrophoenician. I don't know what that is, but it's not Jewish, and that's the only detail we need to know. She's not part of the chosen people, right? The Bible also tells us that she was a Greek. At first glance, that looks like a nationality, but it's not. When the Bible tells us that she was a Greek and a Syrophoenician by nation, it's telling us that she was of a different ethnicity, but when it tells us that she was Greek, that's a lifestyle description. This was a woman who lived the Greek lifestyle. What was the Greek lifestyle like? Not too much different than our lifestyle today. Greeks like to eat. Greeks like to drink. They like to sample the different wines and drink a lot of it. They like to experience new things, new adventures. They like to think up new philosophies. The Greek lifestyle was also one of debauchery. They enjoyed sinfulness. They, they enjoyed engaging in less, I'm, I'm, I'm using big long preacher words. Um, the Greeks were sexually immoral people. That, that, that's, that's the long and short of it. Um, it was a very sex crazed culture. And so this, this, is, this is how the Bible is describing her. She's a different ethnicity but she's also a Greek. So this is a girl that knows how to party. Okay? This, this is what the Bible's telling us about her. Mm-hmm. And this is who comes to Jesus. So we're not talking about one of the good people of the world who's fallen on hard times. Mm-hmm. We're talking about someone who is seeing destruction in her life. And the religious people of her day might have said, well, you had it coming. You can't sit there and get drunk every night and expect it to go well. You can't sit there and have multiple partners and expect to have a functional relationship. You can't sit there and play with a Ouija board and not expect the devil to show up. That's how the people of her day would have responded to her. We talk about things we find on Facebook. There was a picture of a Ouija board on Facebook, and the next frame had a guy saying, Do you want demons? Because that's how you get demons. You don't want to play with the occult. So this woman was a Greek. So the, the reference that's being made here is that she has engaged in a lifestyle that was ungodly. And she was unable to help herself. She couldn't cast the devil out of her daughter. And she didn't know anyone else that could. But this Greek woman had this simple faith in the Lord that he could cast the devil out of her daughter Mm -hmm. and that given his nature and everything she's heard about him he probably would have the simple faith in the Lord and so she came to Jesus and so we learned something oftentimes sinners can teach you something right we used to have a saying at KXYL, you can do all the research and consultation and education you want to and still not learn as much as you could from one ticked-off listener. I don't think that applies to this. Never mind. Forget I said that. But sometimes seeing how God interacts with somebody who's in the worst place in life will teach you something. And so we're going to learn something here. In seeing the situation with this Greek Syrophoenician woman, we're going to see, first of all, who we are. The second thing we're going to see is we're going to see our inability. And the third thing we're going to see is we're going to see the blessing of simple faith. 
You see, when we look at the uh, Syrophoenician Greek woman, the temptation is to see ourselves as Jesus reaching out to these poor sinners. But that's not why we're told the story. We're the sinners that Jesus has reached down to. And so when we see this Syrophoenician woman, when we see the lepers, when we see the blind men, we've got to learn to see ourselves in those shoes. Otherwise, we're not properly learning the Bible. If our lesson from Jesus dining with sinners is that we need to dine with sinners, then we've missed who we are in the story. We're the sinners that Jesus came to dine with. Now, indeed, we should be, you know, we should love one another, love our neighbors, love those around us, and reach out to those around us. I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just saying that we don't need to put ourselves on a pedestal looking down at those poor Greek women. And we, we should reach out to them the way Jesus did. That's not what we're learning here. We're learning that we are the Greek women. So we learn who we are. Do y'all know why zombie movies are so popular? Walking Dead, well, that's a TV show. But why Walking Dead and zombie TV shows and zombie movies are, are so fascinating? Do y'all know that? Do y'all know why? Because really, at the end of the day, that's what we are. We're, we're basically dead without the life of Christ in us. So, you know, and that's one of the things that scares me is when I see somebody that's in a bad way and I'm thinking to myself, you know, boil away all the superficial stuff and there I am. So we learn who we are. Mm -hmm. So let's learn who we are. Verse 26. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation, and she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. Her nationality was Syrophoenician, but her lifestyle was Greek. Decadence, superstition, prideful. The Greeks were very proud of themselves. They were smarter than everybody else. They were philosophers. Paul on Mars Hill, right? He goes up there and they have a statue to every god known to man. And then they got one that's an unknown. This is a statue to the unknown god. And Paul says, let me tell you about this one. The unknown god. I want to tell you about the unknown god. And the Bible says that some believed, some doubted, and some said, we want to hear this story again sometime. And the King James said, we will hear thee again of this matter. Basically like, man, this was a fun debate. Let's do this again sometime. <laughs> they, they were scholars. They were knowledgeable. They were prideful. And they were very ungodly. And because of how open the Greeks were with their sinfulness, they weren't really that accepted into Jewish culture. Like, a Jew, a, a, you know, the Jews might welcome an Ethiopian, the Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, he's still going to be the stranger amongst them, but he, he, he can hang out with us. That's fine. A Greek, not so much. How did we wind up with church deacons? Where did deacons come from? Acts chapter 6, there was a, there was a problem in the Jerusalem church. You had widows, and you had a charity for the widows. And there were two types of widows. There were the Jewish widows. Now, these were widows who had lived their entire life according to Jewish custom and Jewish ritual, and they, they, they were the religious widows, mm-hmm. all right? The, the ladies that wear the big hats to church and sit on the amen pew, that's them. And then there were the, the um, Grecian widows. They, they, those were the widows. They were Jewish. But in their day, they had lived the Greek lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And the accusation was, we're taking care of the amen pew. 
but we're not taking care of these widows that had a harder lifestyle coming up. And so in order to solve the problem, the apostles say, well, let's appoint deacons, and they'll make sure everybody gets treated fairly. You see, Greeks were looked down upon. And there were some Jews who adopted the Greek lifestyle because it looked fun. And they were pretty well kicked out of the kingdom, so to speak. You know, their parents may hold a funeral for them and pretend they were dead. They were not readily welcomed into the Jewish culture. So what am I talking about here? To understand the way people viewed, the, the Jewish people viewed Greeks in that day, imagine if somebody walked into the back door here with purple and blue hair, sleeve tattoos up both arms, wearing a tank top with a picture of Che Guevara on the front, pulling up in a vehicle with an Obama bumper sticker on it, wearing a pink stocking cap thing. I mean, y'all would be nice. I know you would, but you're probably also... Right? Like, what's going on here? That's how the Jews viewed the Greeks. That's how they did. And so here you have this lady, this Syrophoenician Greek woman. She is estranged from Christ because she's the wrong ethnicity and also because she's made the sinful choices. And it's easy for us to look down on others who show the cultural symptoms of a life marred by sin. It's easier for us to look at somebody who's a recovering drug addict or who has a criminal record or who is experiencing homelessness or any of the other telltale signs of someone who's made a bunch of bad decisions and say, man, well, you made your choices. It's easy to look down on them. But the same sin that leaves visible scars in the lives of others is also present within our hearts. So it's easy for me to look down on the guy who's missing all of his teeth because they all fell out because he smoked crack his entire life. What's not easy for me is to realize that I had and have some of the same tendencies towards substance abuse. It's easy to look down on the man living in the one-bedroom apartment because he's been divorced because he cheated on his wife. It's not as easy to realize that that same adulterous desire exists within my heart. Right? Why aren't we in the same boat? The grace of God. Yeah. Plain and simple. Amen. Within our heart exists the same sin that has left others in that state of brokenness. I'm talking about lust, sinful desires, fornication, sexual immorality, adultery, anger, hatred. You ever see on the news and these guys that have these swastika tattoos and they've got their face covered and they've got their banners and they're marching and, and, and you know that these dudes are just evil. And then you have the other side. They call themselves Antifa. And they, they don't carry the Nazi flag, but they'll throw a Molotov cocktail at you and they'll, they'll set your house on fire, right? Mm-hmm. Well, these people are angry. They hate. They hate those that are not like them. One claims that they're fighting for equality, but they both have the same hate and anger toward those who are not like them. That's horrible, isn't it? It's horrible that we live in a day and age where a speaker coming upon a university campus can draw violent protests and people can be hurt and even killed. 
Hate and anger. You have any hate and anger in your heart? You may have it when you see them on TV, right? We have those same things in our heart. That's the point I'm trying to make. Rebellion. Covetousness. Covetousness. We, that's, what so, that's what's driving socialism right now. Covetousness. They have it. We should have it too. That's, that's covetousness. Do you have any of that in your heart? Just like that sin estranged the Syrophoenician woman from God, and it continues to estrange those in our culture from God, the sin in our heart will drive a wedge between us and God. We have to understand that that sin is present within our heart too and be aware of that. Otherwise, we'll become prideful. We'll become like the Pharisee in the temple, praying to God. God, I thank you that I'm not like this publican over here. Well, how would you like to have somebody pray, pray that in your presence? God, I thank you I'm not like Brother Wayman. <laughs> you might not come to church after that, will you? Where, where does that prayer come from? It comes from pride. It comes from thinking that I've got it all clean and straightened out in here. And I don't. And you don't. We're struggling against it. Yeah. Can any of us claim that that sin is not in our hearts? Can you, don't, don't even look at me with a straight face. Look at God with a straight face. Can you look to God and say, God, I thank you because I have no, no anger in my heart. I have no hatred in my heart. I have no feelings of sexual immorality in my heart. I have no feelings of covetousness in my heart. God, I am here to surrender to whatever you tell me to do. Because if you don't, that's rebellion. See, I got issues with rebellion. I don't always want to do what God wants me to do. All right? God wants me to go visit hospice patients every day. I want to watch Netflix. I know that sounds pathetic. It is. That's rebellion. Well, Leland, everybody wants to stay at home and watch Netflix. But God has told me. I'm not hearing voices. I'm just saying God has laid on my heart. I need to go visit some folks. But that's hard to do, isn't it? I don't want to do that. That's, that's a rebellious nature. Can any of us look to God and say, I don't have any of this in me? No, we can't, right? Why is it still in you? Can you get it out of you? Clean that out of you, right? You can't do that, can you? The Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There, I was told a story of a man who claimed that he hadn't sinned since 1988. Well, that man thinks that he has not sinned since 1988, but he has deceived himself. He has sinned since 1988, I can guarantee you. We can't go a single day without having sinful thoughts. And so that brings us to our inability. This Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus. Why did she come to Jesus? She's Greek, she's Syrophoenician, she's a foreigner. You know, this is not even her culture. Why is she coming to Jesus? Because her daughter is possessed by a devil and she can't help. She can't cast it out. Jesus is her only hope. She came to Jesus because of her inability. If you have ever struggled with addiction, you know the struggle of trying to overcome addiction on your own. Yeah. My addiction was cigarettes. It was, it was you know, that, that sounds simple when you look at what all is going on in our culture. I thought I was an alcoholic once. 
I went to AA, and they, they visited with me, and they said, okay, so what's your drinking patterns like? When do you drink? How much do you drink? And, and when I told them what, I did, what all I did, they said, son, you're not an alcoholic. You're just a stupid teenager that can't make good decisions. Learn to make better decisions. Like, well, I guess that's one less thing to worry about. Just got to make good decisions. So I started making good decisions. Jessica helped. Um, like, I said, she's lo- like I said in Sunday school, she's loving, and sometimes it's tough love. Um, but, you know, if you've ever struggled with chemical dependency, um, in my case, it was cigarettes. And that's, that's, again, that's silly. If you've ever dealt with pain medication addiction or anything like that, one of the worst things you can do is try to make it on your own. Because what happens, and I've seen my friend's, my friend's wife has gone through this several times, what happens is you straighten up for a while and you power through the initial withdrawal symptoms. And you power through all that, and you get to a place where life is kind of somewhat almost normal. And you're kind of sort of holding it together for a while, right? And then the trigger happens. Something triggers you. It could be a happy occasion. It could be a sad occasion. But something triggers you. Mm-hmm. And you take that first hit again, or you take that first pill again. And next thing you know, you're right back down in the gutter. Mm-hmm. And many times, you're worse off than you were the first time. Like my friend's wife. And I'm not telling you anything that she has not publicly proclaimed and posted on the internet for the entire world to see because she sees this as her ministry right now, as ministering to others. But she had a drug addiction, a substance abuse problem uh, back when she was in her early 20s. And my friend who married her, he had the same issue. They, they struggled with substance abuse addictions. Um, his tend, he, he tended to gravitate toward anything that would put him in a euphoria, his drug of choice was mostly marijuana. There's not really a chemical dependency, but there's a psychological dependency with that. Mm-hmm. Hers was some of the more harder stuff. But they meet, they go through the 12-step programs, they clean up, right? And they get married. She gets, she's straightened her life out. She's partaking in a church ministry. She's working a day job. She gets her son back. Her son had been placed in kinship foster care with her mother. She, gets, she went to court, got her son back. She's the perfect suburban mom now. But something triggered. I don't know what it was. I don't know what happened. But she left my friend, went to Austin, wound up back on the drugs. She went from Austin to New Orleans, wound up homeless on the streets of New Orleans. Y'all know where, the, where her child was? My friend was raising him. Hmm. Left her son with my, with my friend. Yeah. And she, she got to that point where she was like the prodigal son lying in the pig pen, realizing the total downfall. She, she called my friend up and says, hey, I blew it. Can I come back? And he says, I can't, I can't do this with you. I love you, I hope you do well, but I can't, I, can't bring, I can't bring you back into my life right now, not like this. She checked into a rehab center in Victoria, Texas, got discharged from that after passing their program, moved back to Waco, got her an apartment in Waco. It was a long process, but she has since become clean. Her marriage to my friend has been reunited. She owns a business and she's running a halfway house for women who are escaping abusive, abusive relationships. What, what's the difference? 
Her journey this time around is a lot more Christ-centered because she realized she can't beat that addiction, not on her own and not by the power of man. You see, when she tried it on her own by the power of man, she wound up homeless on the streets of, of New Orleans. Tries it with God's help, she's being restored. See what I'm saying? We can't do it on our own. When we do, we make things worse. Since our heart is the source of sin, we cannot cleanse it. We can't clean it. It's in there. If you don't think it is, your heart's convinced you and deceived you into thinking it's not in there. Because Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? See, in our heart, all the stuff I've mentioned earlier, sexual immorality, hate, lust, covetousness, rebellion, that's all in your heart. And you can't go through a day without thinking about it. You know, Jesus told us, if you look upon a woman to lust after her in your heart, you committed adultery with her in your heart. Well, that's not fair. Because, guys, it's hard to go through a day without having those thoughts, isn't it? Oh, y'all don't have to, don't, don't shake your heads at that. I'm not asking for confessional. But it's hard to go through a day without having bad thoughts. That's not fair, is it? That's setting the bar too high. We, we used to have debates when I, was a, when I was a teenager about, well, if you think about it, if you're already guilty, then shouldn't you just go ahead and do it and get the, get the full ride for the, for the money? And that's not what Jesus was saying. Mm-hmm. What Jesus, when Jesus said, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you committed adultery with her in your heart, what he's doing is he's showing us what's in our heart. Yeah. And that's the sin that separates us from God. Yeah. We can't overcome that. If we could cleanse ourselves of sin... Christ would not have had to have died on the cross. Or as Galatians 3.21 puts it, if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And King David understood this concept. King David understood that in his heart was sin. King David understood that in his heart was pride. King David understood that in his heart was fornication and adultery. Which is why when he prayed his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, he said things like, purge me with hyssop or cleanse me. With hyssop, and I shall be clean, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Or in Psalm 51.10, he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We can't cleanse ourselves. No amount of religion, no 12-step program, no ritualistic prayer, no positive thinking, no just determining to not do that anymore. None of that will cleanse you. It's God who cleanses. It's the Lord who cleanses. Mm-hmm. And we access that by trusting the Lord. And that's where we get to the simple faith. See? My heart's not clean. I, my, my preacher when I was growing up would say things like, I'm a sinner too, and I'm thinking, what does this guy do? Because I know what I did. I couldn't figure out, I couldn't see this guy doing what I did. So he's like, I'm a sinner too. I'm like, Really? What did you do, eat dinner without saying prayer first last night? Oh, you're in a heap of trouble now, boy. Now, what does this guy do? I didn't understand the sin that's in the heart and the struggle. See, I'm, I, don't, I have sin in my heart. I struggle with that. I struggle with stuff I don't tell you all about. Um, y'all struggle with stuff you don't tell me about. It's okay. If I told y'all some of the things that went through my head, y'all wouldn't want to come to church no more. 
Leland is psychotic. Stay away from him. I wouldn't blame him. Um, so how do we overcome? Through the Lord. Amen. And by trusting the Lord. That simple faith. Amen. And what does that look like? Verse 28. And she answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord, the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. Wait, why did she say that? Oh, in verse 27, Jesus said, Let the children first be filled, for it is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it unto the dogs. Wait, hold on. Stop the truck. Let's back up here. This woman done come to Jesus asking her, asking him to cast the devil out of his daughter. Out of, I'm getting my pronouns messed up. <laughs> this woman came to Jesus asking Jesus to cast a devil out of her daughter. And Jesus done told her, I can't take that, the children's bread and give it to the dogs. <laughs> oh, so you're saying I'm a dog? That's what he, he do y'all see that? Jesus done called this woman a dog. You can't do that. He did. Was, he, was Jesus being hateful? Contrary? No. What's he doing? He's teaching her something. I can't call anybody a dog because that's not teaching them something. That's me being mean. Mm -hmm. But Jesus, in the right place and time, knowing hearts, called this woman a dog. It's not me to give the children's bread to the dogs. And her response to this, are you calling me a dog? <laughs> she didn't say that, did she? No. She says, you're right, Lord. Mm-hmm. But in my house, the kids drop stuff off the table, and the dogs at least get to lick the floor. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thankful for dogs. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't had to mop my kitchen floor all week. <laughs> Spot and stamp have that covered for me. Good dog. Have you another piece of chicken? <laughs> Do you realize? When she says this, what she's saying, she's saying, you're right, Lord. Yeah. I'm a dog. What is that? Mm -hmm. That's confession. Yeah. That's confession. That's repentance. That's her realizing her sinful situation. Yes. She acknowledged her sinful condition, and yet she still begged for mercy. Because she trusted Christ to heal her in spite of herself. We cannot deny who we are in our hearts. And we cannot fix it. When we try to deny it in our hearts, we are actually blocking God from healing us of it. That's right. When you deny that you're a sinner, you're blocking the Lord from being able to cleanse you of your sin. When you deny your rebelliousness, you are denying God the access to be able to heal your rebelliousness. We don't want to think of ourselves that way. After all, I don't have purple hair. I'm not as bad as this other guy over here. Yeah, but that other guy over there is not the standard now, is he? No, we're all sinners. And when we come before the Lord... And we confess that sin. We acknowledge that sinfulness and we ask him 
for his salvation, for his cleansing, to create in me a clean heart. And if you already know Jesus as your Savior, you can still pray that prayer to cleanse you of your sin. Because King David, I believe, was already saved when he wrote the 51st Psalm where he asked God to create in him a clean heart. God, uh, David knew that without the Lord, he had no righteousness of his own. Yes. And he especially had no right to think that after he had committed adultery and killed a dude. He understood exactly what the problem was. And he asked for God's help with it. Mm -hmm. And that should be our approach to life as well. Right. All we can do is simply trust the Lord to save us, mm -hmm. to cleanse us, to receive us into his kingdom. And that's simple faith. You see, God does not save because we get it all together. Mm -hmm. God saves us even though we can't get it all together. That's right.